good morning, Grace Clovis. It's really good to be for our ministry all the way in San Jose State, um, just really t- um, how he can be praying for us. And so I'm just really touched to be here. Um, thank you for welcoming me. Well, this morning we'll have a heaven. And um, the, uh, one of the things that happened to me on campus that sit down and talk to me, what is, I don't understand, what's the point of heaven? I, I don't get what the big deal is. And, you know, when I was that age, it was sort of the, the thing that's thought to um, just an important thing for, for us as, as believers, or maybe if you're seeking, to really consider God's vision for heaven. You know, when I was growing up, um, I thought that heaven was, I came to the Lord, not, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but I came to know him at a young age, and when I heard about heaven, I thought, like, it was a really awesome afterthought. I was glad that it was there, um, but I saw little relevance to my own actual life. I grew up hearing phrases like, you know, you don't want to be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. And so the Bible challenges us this evening that if hope in heaven has no practical impact on our lives, then we must also conclude that hopelessness has no practical impact on our lives. And there are so many examples of where hopelessness leads people down a variety of destructive paths. So our passage this morning in Isaiah 25 tells us that the hope of heaven is part of, uh, in order to have a hope of heaven, you have to know that it is part of God's real plan, that it's concrete um, in its promises and worth looking forward to. That's what we're going to see. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah 25 and hear God's word. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged, and he will swallow up on this mountain full of marrow of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trampled down in his place as straws trampled down in a dunghill, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this passage uh, of Scripture that tells us of a future hope um, that comforts us um, in the midst of of the life that we live, to know that you are preparing something wonderful for us. Help us to grasp your vision of heaven. 
Help us to understand the value and the wonder of looking forward to the day where we will be in sweet communion with you, deeper uh, than we enjoy right here and right now as we come into your house to worship you. Uh, Help us to long for it. Uh, Put that within us, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my first memory after being an ordained minister uh, was actually the day after my ordination. I got a call at 6 a.m. in the morning. My throat was still scratchy uh, from just waking up. And on the other line was a young woman in her 20s from our church. She had been babysitting her newborn niece. And her brother, uh, her sister and brother-in-law were enjoying a night off. Uh, you can imagine how exhausting having, having a newborn was. And so they went on a date night. And during that date night, their baby died. And I received the tear-filled call after the panic through the night, the trip to the hospital, the pronouncement of that baby's death. Um, and I had never heard of sudden infant death syndrome until this phone call. Now, this young lady in her 20s did not have the luxury uh, to think of the horrors of death later. It came, for I had only been a pastor for about five minutes. I didn't have any words to sort of conjure up to bring comfort to this young woman. And so my instinct was to pray. And the only comforting prayer that came to mind came from this morning's passage and its corresponding text in Revelation 21. My prayer acknowledged that God knew about our tears. He knew about our pain, and he was sure to wipe them away and to make sure that death would never threaten his children again. As I read Isaiah 25, I read how much God hates the death that has threatened his precious creation because of sin. And he has something to say in face of that death so that you and I can have true and genuine hope. So we'll see this morning that first, the hope of heaven is part of God's plan, is concrete in its promises, and lastly is to be enjoyed. Now before I get too far, I want to say that when I say heaven this morning, uh, what I mean is what we, most of us think of when we hear the word heaven. Um, it's, uh, when I say heaven, what I mean is it's sort of the final state of God's salvation plan, what the Bible technically calls the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation 21, uh, when um, John quotes this text from Isaiah, um, he means for us to know that uh, whatever this new heavens and new earth will be, it will be exactly what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25. So I wanted to start off with that. And the first thing I want us to notice is that in verse 1, it tells us that we can hope for heaven because it's part of God's plan. He is totally in control of that plan, and he will see it to completion. Take a look with me again. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And Isaiah references God's faithfulness in the past so that when he transitions to the future in verse 6, that part that we really like, we can know that the same God who kept his promises in the past will keep his promises in the future. But I want to marvel for a second at the fact that God has a plan in the first place. The fact that God has a plan means that our life is progressing. It tells us that life and time are linear. Life is not some kind of stagnant, meaningless drift, nor is it an endless repeating cycle. And heaven tells us that we're not just moving forward, but we're moving forward toward a good destination. You know, the college campus where I minister, uh, I get to be around people who are, by definition, planners, because college is not forever. It is four, and maybe if you struggle a little bit, maybe six years long, but it's temporary. It is full of people who are planning and thinking about their future. Um, They don't plan to stay in college forever. And, you know, the grandest plan that I've heard uh, was from a student who had just graduated, and he wanted to retire in his 40s. And I said, wow, that's amazing. How do you plan to do that? 
And so his plan was to squirrel away money um, and live with his parents and have them pay for all of his expenses and all of his food and live in their house rent-free. And by using this plan and squirreling away his work money, which um, he was a, a civil engineer and his salary did not amount to the plans that he had. But because I, I asked him, how do you plan to do this? But he was like, sure. He's like, Brian, I have run the numbers. I can do this and I can retire at 40 if I stick to my plan. And I said, great. Um, so that's a plan for for grandness and early retirement. But I also met a man from Sweden. He's a Swedish immigrant at my former church. And I asked him, he had just had a young boy. And I asked him, Daniel, what are your plans for your son? Like, what do you think about with him? And he says, I hope one day that my son can be a mid-level programmer. And I thought that was so funny because it was so different from the American dream, right? Because we always want to shoot higher and, and aim higher. But he, he, it's because he had been shoved into a management position and he didn't really like people. He just wanted to code all the time. And he was like, no, I do not want that life for my son. I just want him to be a mid-level programmer. But whether you have plans for greatness, for early retirement, or for stability, like my mid-level programmer friend, um, we all have plans. Nobody I know goes through life, you know, or goes through college going, you know, when I graduate from college, I expect nothing to happen. I don't want anything. I just want it to stop and do, I just want to do nothing. And you'd, and you'd be like, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Um, but I want you to know that that is the, the number one reason that I hear young people who don't know the Lord and, and don't have a religion, when I ask them, what do you think happens to you when you die? The number one most popular answer is that, well, I'm not going to go to heaven. Uh, things are just going to stop. They're just going to end into nothingness. As a well-known pastor in our denomination uh, who helpfully observed that, you know, the one thing that is keeping people going in a world without a plan for a better future after death is optimism. You know what that is? That's looking at a glass half full rather than half empty. And I have some special insight because I myself am an optimistic person. I think that's a little bit personality, but also a little bit of my Christian faith. Um, you know, I think that people like to be around an optimistic person. Um, generally, people see them as they tend to be a little bit happier. But I'll tell you one thing. Optimistic people um, can, can often be really annoying. When someone is going through real pain, or, or real suffering, my optimistic comments, uh, looking at the brighter side of things, are really just tone deaf and insensitive. See, optimism has nothing to say in the face of real pain, life-threatening sickness, and especially death. Now, I was confiding in a friend about a difficult circumstance that I was going through. There was a close family member who has shunned me, and uh, I'm, for reasons I'm not going to go into here, but my friend noticed that I was going into optimism mode. I was starting to whitewash the situation, maybe starting to see it as maybe not that bad. And then I began to go and make defenses for the person who was sinning against me, saying, well, they had a really hard upbringing themselves. Or, you know, maybe they didn't. They weren't very loved when they were younger. And, you know, my, my friend went, uh, patiently listened to me, and then he said, you know, Brian, sometimes optimism can be a cover for a lack of faith or unbelief. And I had never heard that before. He was saying that instead of looking to God and trusting in his promises through, genuinely, through a genuinely painful and hurtful situation, I was trying to essentially pretend that things weren't so bad, even though that they were. My friend wasn't scolding me for unbelief or a lack of faith. He wanted me to see that God can do better than letting us lie to ourselves about real pain and suffering. And in order for the hope of heaven to be greater than mere optimism, it needs to be concrete. And that's exactly what God God's promise of heaven does. God's future promises are not some nebulous, well, it'll just get better somehow. God gives us concrete and specific promises 
when he talks about heaven. And that's my second point. God promises concretely to put an end to suffering, to wipe away every tear, to swallow up death forever. But notice that bookending, this very hopeful picture, that there is all this judgment. Did you notice that? Take a look at verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And then in verse 10, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. The image of God's judgment in Isaiah of drowning uh, your and his enemies in a latrine by is, uh, that is like the, the most terrifying thing that I've ever heard of. Um, I remember as a young boy reading novels about Vietnam, and there, there's a troop that went through uh, in Vietnam, this latrine, and some of them died in there. I remember thinking, that is the most ter- that's like top three ways I do not want to die. Um, but, and, and God's judgment is meant to terrify us. Isaiah wants us to see that when God tells us about future hope, it comes right alongside God's judgment or his justice. Same word in the Bible, his judgment and his justice. There, these are the same word. And I think that for many of us living in the, mon- in the modern world, that's really uncomfortable. And it's even more uncomfortable the way that God's judgment is talked about. It's actually something that we, as God's people, are supposed to long for and wait patiently for. And so what's going on here? I think that God's judgment is always going to be a problem for us when we think about it in isolated abstraction because it makes it seem like God is a God who flies off the handle um, or who has no love for his creation. And so we have to see God's judgment in its own context. When we remember how God actually displays his judgment in the lives of real people, we, we begin to see that the Bible shows God as a God who is a God who, when he uses his judgment or his justice, he uses it to rescue people. Our passage does not say that God's judgment comes against foreigners. It says it comes against ruthless foreigners. And who might this be? Well, um, if you think about, well, who in Israel's history are ruthless foreigners? Well, we might think about Egypt, who enslaved the Israelites for 400 years and that oppressed them so hard that God had to intervene supernaturally to free them from their slavery in Egypt. Remember, we talked about in verse 1 that God wants us to remember how God always keeps his promises in the past so that his future promises can be further trusted. Well, Israel had to look in the past and, and think about how God saved them from their slave masters. These are the ruthless foreigners that we're talking about. We actually need to hope in God's concrete wrath and judgment. Otherwise, he won't be who he says he is in verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. Now, in Isaiah's present context, Israel was once again subjugated by the brutal and ruthless Babylonians. Now, as we look back in history and archaeology, we actually have a lot more archaeology and evidence from a people prior to the Babylonians, the Assyrians, who the Babylonians took over. Um, but we get it, and since we have so much more evidence, it's important to realize uh, what the Assyrians were like as we t- try to get a picture of what the Babylonians were like. The Assyrians were so ruthless that they would strip their enemies naked, tie them together, and put hooks in their mouths and drag them in public. They would often cut the heads off of their enemies and pile them in a mound so high outside the city walls to intimidate their, um, the people they were at war with. They would impale people, uh, sometimes dead, sometimes alive, for disobedience. The, the Assyrians were people bent on conquest and takeover. 
And the Babylonians conquered these people. And they didn't do it through diplomacy. They did it through war. And so what does that mean for us? As Isaiah talks about foreign and ruthless enemies, he's showing us that death is to be thought of as our great enemy. The enemy, that enemy is coming and will defeat us unless God steps in. Death is not a welcome friend like we often see in some novels or, or TV and movies. I remember growing up with The Lion King, hearing about the great circle of life. You remember Mufasa, Simba's father, says, you know, Simba, the lions, we eat the antelope, but then we die and become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. So you see it's all part of the circle of life. And you hear that, that soothing music in the background, and you just begin to think as a young person, yeah, that's great. Well, here's a more realistic picture of that, what happens in real life when we think that way. There was once a seven-year-old boy whose three-year-old cousin had died, and he asked his mother, where's my cousin now? And this, this, the mother um, didn't believe in an afterlife, didn't believe in heaven, and so she didn't feel like it was in her, she could talk about that in good conscience. And so she said what she had learned. She had said, well, your cousin has gone back to the earth where we all came from. So you see, son, when you see the flowers next spring, you can know that your cousin's life is fertilizing those flowers. And how do you think that boy responded? Well, that seven-year-old boy screamed at the top of his lungs, and he ran away, and he said, I don't want him to become fertilizer. And I think that that seven-year-old boy is more honest about the realities of death than a lot of us are. Death was never the way it was meant to be, and God gives us a picture of death through the lived experience of Israel being threatened by real nations, with formidable and intimidating armies. These armies were a tangible picture of death. It is the enemy that threatens, death is the enemy that threatens every human being in this world. And Old Testament Israel didn't have the luxury of just sort of ignoring their enemies, um, and we don't have the luxury of ignoring the reality of death. It is coming, and we need someone to deliver us. The Isaiah context has another important textual element. The reason Isaiah needed to be rescued is because they, at this time, actually abandoned their relationship with God, and God responded by rejecting them from the land. And so the judgment of God was not partial or prejudiced. Our passage says that the veil of death is over all people. In other words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The same judgment that is directed towards Israel's enemies was directed towards Israel themselves when they abandoned and turn their back on God. And by the way, when they did turn their back on God, they became ruthless themselves. That's what happens when we break relationship with God. We become ruthless um, to our neighbors, to others. And so there are enemies from the outside that are, that are threatening us from without, and there are enemies from within. And if that's the truth, then how will we ever be safe and find peace? And the answer is that Jesus would have to come and defeat death. And he did that on the cross when he gave his own perfect obedient life to satisfy God's wrath against his enemies. Our passage says that d death will be swallowed forever. And the only way that could happen by God's plan is that death would swallow Jesus first. And yet the Bible tells us that it could not have victory over Jesus because he rose from the dead to proclaim real hope for anyone who wished to be reconciled to God. I like how one commentator put it. The darkness of death swallowed Jesus. He entered it, but then he blew a hole out the back of it. It had no right over to him because he was innocent. Now it has no ultimate right over those who put their faith in him. And so how can we know for sure 
for certain that death will really be defeated. And God uses the image of a feast to assure us. Um, and my third point is that heaven will be enjoyable in, experience, in its experience. The symbol and image that you and I can be sure that death will actually be defeated once and for all is a feast that God will throw for his people. You know, in the ancient Near East, the way that you would signal a victory is a feast. And you can't really celebrate and eat if your enemies have sort of just been wounded and are regrouping. They have to be gone for good for you to really enjoy a feast. And God uses one of my favorite images in the Bible. God is going to prepare a feast of rich food full of marrow. And do you know what that tells me? That tells me that heaven is going to be like an excellent bowl of ramen noodles. Now, hang on. I don't know a single person who hasn't had a cup of noodles or a pack of that block of ramen noodles. Uh, the ramen that we grew up with had that MSG mystery broth, um, and it was in that freeze-dried block or that cup, and ramen was cheap, less than ramen. Many college students testify that they made it through college eating ramen at 12 a.m. This type of ramen is not like heaven. But about seven-ish years ago, a real Japanese ramen began to make its way to the States, and uh, Nicole and I, are, we're really big foodies, and so like our Disneyland is like Manhattan, New York. We could eat everything we wanted, and there's like a lot of different... But we got to have this, this really authentic bowl of ramen noodles. Now, real ramen noodles are, are wheat noodles, and they're cooked in a bone marrow broth. It's not clear. It's really milky, but it's not greasy, which is amazing, because bone marrow is essentially fat. Um, you're eating this bowl of noodles drenched in fat, but when you eat it, you begin to think, whatever I've been eating all my life, is not ramen. And in heaven, we will look back on this thing called life, and we will not say that it was a waste. Just like cheap ramen noodles, they had a purpose. We needed them to sort of keep going. But when you taste the real thing, you can never go back. Everything about our lives in God's kingdom in heaven will be so much more full and satisfying. Now, as a young man, I thought that uh, heaven was great, but I often thought, well, I got some stuff to do. I have plans to make. I've, I didn't want to go right away. Um, and, uh, and I want you to, th that's a little bit like saying, I want to get my fill of cheap ramen noodles, all that I can, while the real thing is waiting for you. The image of food dripping with marrow is given to us because that's the type of food that will leave you satisfied with the best that God has to offer. And if you want to know, uh, what, like, if you have trouble longing for heaven, and, and I know that that can be difficult, um, especially if life on earth is pretty pretty good. Um, if you ever want to know what it is to long for heaven desperately, all you need to do is speak to those here on earth who are the most afflicted. Um, I met a worship leader who was at a youth camp, and uh, he was afflicted with so many allergies. And this was before you could get gluten-free, nut-free, soy-free, dairy-free foods that actually tasted good. And so every meal had to be meticulously and carefully planned. Um, and at a camp situation, he had to bring his own I think what he, all he had to eat was salad and his own, his own special dressing. And when he talked about heaven, he talked about, you know, one day when I'm in glory, I'll finally get to sit down to a meal, and I won't have to worry if this food that everyone else can enjoy will hurt me and will kill me one day. I won't have to worry. And that's what he hoped for. I mean, he hoped for many other things, but he certainly hoped for that. One day my body won't reject these things that God has made. Still more severe, there was a girl in my youth group, and she had a brain tumor removed. And as, when that brain tumor removed, um, something got really messed up in her gastrointestinal tract, and she couldn't eat except for through these bags that had to be ported in, not through her mouth, but uh, it was either over here or over here. And she couldn't 
remove waste normally. She had to remove waste through a tube in her stomach. And you can imagine a teenage girl, sometimes that tube would malfunction and it would just be all over the place. And she would have to run to the bathroom, call her mom and say, mom, please come pick me up. It, my, my tube has just malfunctioned, please. And she was so embarrassed and she was so hurt. And that young lady has been in and out of the hospital all of her teenage years. And listening to her talk about, you know, one day I'll get to live in a body that's not going to break down, that, that actually works and functions. And when you talk to people like this, you begin to realize, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe this world doesn't have everything that there is to offer. Maybe there is a world to come where these things will be gone and their tears will be wiped away. Now, I know that some of us don't have these issues. And is, is there hope in heaven for us who have perfect health? Uh, maybe a pretty nice life. And I want you to know that you bet there, you bet there is. There is hope. Um, even if you're the spinning image of health, you know what it is to live in a world where sin has broken our relationships, where our own selfishness or someone else's selfishness, selfishness has ruined the relationships we love, whether it be a parent to a child, husband to a wife, friend to a friend. Whatever it is, we know what it is to live in a world that is just wrecked by sin. And uh, Jonathan Edwards has this great example um, of what love is like in this world. And this is a great Puritan example because it's very Debbie Downer. But he says that our love in this world, when we love each other in this world, it's like, it's like a pipe that's been clogged. Some water gets through, but it's like dirty sewage water, right? That's what our love is like. But in heaven, one day that clog is going to be removed and you will love the Lord your God with a pure love, and you will love each other without having selfishness come and ruin it. That pipe will be clear, and we will love God and love one another um, totally unencumbered by our sin. And that, friends, is why we have to celebrate, or that is why when we get to heaven, we will have to celebrate with what Isaiah calls aged wine well refined. The universal symbol for celebration and joy is a glass of wine. Now, the last stanza in Isaiah speaks about Moab, a symbol of Israel's enemies being stripped of their power and security. And that tells us, it, the passage ends this way because it tells us that death doesn't get the final word. God does. And I needed to know that in 2019. By March in 2019, three people I knew died. Uh, and by this June, are we in July? Where are we? We're in June. Uh, that number has actually risen to four. Um, but three of these people, I got to go to their funerals. The first was the funeral of my cousin. Um, and this was a traditional Chinese funeral, um, which was steeped in ancestor worship and rituals. And this was very personal to me because this would have been my funeral had I not repented and turned to Jesus. Um, let me describe this funeral to you. It was, there was a loud weeping and wailing, um, and there was so much pain and sorrow. And it was a very vivid picture of death and hopelessness. Uh, you know how people go to funerals and they say, wow, that was a beautiful service. This was not a beautiful service. If people weren't screaming and crying, there was this deafening silence in the midst of death. There was an open casket. And it couldn't have been more clear to me that in the face of death, if we don't have an answer, all we have is hopelessness and wailing and silence. Um, and then, uh, so that was one version, one funeral of hopelessness at death. But the two other funerals were funerals of my youth group mentor, the man who showed me what it was 
to walk with Jesus and to love him and to be loved by him um, and to pray to him with, with passion. Um, he was the man that would one day suggest to me, you know, Brian, it's possible that you might be called to be a pastor. And I was in a family situation where that was not, that's not a positive thing. Um, that is actually like a major tragedy. Um, and so for him to be God's instrument to speak that way was really important. I got to go to his funeral. And were there tears? You bet there were, many of them. But, but tears of um, remembering all that this man, his name was Craig, had done in their lives. Craig was a lifer. We call him a lifer in youth ministry. He spent all of his time with teens and invested in them um, and shared the love of Jesus with them. And whether it be through the Facebook post that kept coming in or sharing at his actual funeral, it was just story after story of how this man, used by God, blessed so many young people during, during a crucial part of their lives. Um, his, his funeral reminded me, uh, the one story I thought of it was kind of like Samson. You know what it says about Samson? He, he did more for the Lord in his death than in his life. Um, and it was almost like it was a firework of bright light had, had come through as we talked about Craig's death and all that he meant in the lives of the people that he cared about in this world. When we think about, um, there were so many stories of thankfulness um, and so much thanks to his God that he hoped in. And uh, it made me think about this quote. I don't remember which Puritan said it, but he said this, that death, uh, that the gospel and the hope of heaven changed death from an executioner to a gardener. That's what you have to look forward to, that when we die, trusting and having faith in Christ, that before it was a horror, but it but God did something so that it turned into something that birthed new life. Um, and so we talked a lot about Craig being in glory. Um, a very different picture of death. Still sorrowing, but not sorrowing the way um, like people did for my cousin. And uh, the second man was Jameson. We, we prayed for his widow during the pastoral prayer. I got to go to his funeral, and I got to see a very similar picture of all these people that he had touched, that he had loved throughout his life. Um, but I learned one extra detail, that Jameson uh, loved the Bay Area and his ministry field so much that when he went to go be a church planner, uh, I don't know if you remember from Brad telling you, but he, went, he left an RUF ministry in Santa Barbara to go plant a church in San Jose, and as soon as he got there, he contracted cancer, fought it for a year, and then died. Um, but he loved that area so much that he said, you know, I want to go plant a church, but I'm not going to go plant a church unless there's a college ministry along with me. And so the very fact that I can stand here before you is because of his love for the Bay Area. And so you remember that I, I said in the beginning, um, there's that famous phrase, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But these two men were very heavenly minded. They spent their lives telling people about the hope of heaven. And I want to share with you that their earthly good was hard to measure. It was so much and it was so brightly shared at their funerals. Um, that what can we do but give God glory. And so this evening, I stand on their shoulders and I say to you that to everyone who wants a true hope for the future, if you really want to hope in a world without sin and death threatening you, then God says, come, trust in my son Jesus, trust in his death for your forgiveness and his resurrection for eternal life, and he will lead you to the heaven your soul not only wants, but it desperately needs. Would you pray with me? Our Father God, we thank you that you give us a hope for the future, that you tell us that this world, um, though we live with you and are blessed by you walking with us, is not all that there is, but you have something waiting for us 
Give us, um, that is so good and so rich and so satisfying. Give us hearts that long to be with you. But in the meantime, as we walk here on earth, on our journey towards your, uh, the new heavens and new earth, as we journey towards you, be with us, walk with us. Help us to love people here and to share your gospel with those who are without hope. Um, but always, Lord, give us that longing for the better thing that you have waiting for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.